Battles of the past define the present. This is Shields High. The Siege of Malta, Part 2. What's the greatest battle in all history? It's an impossible question to answer, but it's one we think about. It's one that historians can debate throughout all the ages. Was there one single martial contest that had a greater impact on the world than any other? There are certainly wars that we think about frequently when we talk of history and the making of the modern world. World War II, World War I, the Civil War, you go back in history and human conflict is the one constant. Every society in every age has had periods of warfare that forever changed the world that those nations and tribes and individuals were living in. If we were compiling a list of the most important battles and for the time in which they took place, the most fierce martial contests, the Siege of Malta of 1565 would have to be on the list. Voltaire, the timeless French author, said nothing is better known than the Siege of Malta. If only that were true. It's not a story that is widely taught in American schools, and it certainly in our current era isn't framed as an effort by Islamic conquest to establish a forward operating base for the annihilation of Rome, of Christendom, and of the West. But the Ottoman Sultan at the time, Suleiman the Magnificent, certainly thought that those were the stakes. And the Christian defenders on the island of Malta, the Knights of St. John, later to be known as the Knights of Malta for their incredible endurance and bravery during the Great Siege, understood that it wasn't merely their lives, but it was their souls and the future of Christendom itself that was threatened by the massive Ottoman invasion of this tiny, rocky island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. For more of the background on this battle, the run-up to it, and the great naval commander lost, even in most histories of the era, the knight and naval commander, the ferocious warrior Romaga of the Knights of St. John, please check out the podcast previously released under Shields High, The Siege of Malta, Part 1. The year of our Lord, 1565. The Ottoman Empire is by far the most powerful entity in the entire Western world. The forces of Christendom have been pushed back continuously on land and on sea, and there have been numerous efforts by the Sultan to strike deep into the heart of Europe itself. After the fall of Constantinople in 1453, it was left to the Venetians to provide some shield for Christendom against the Ottoman advances, but the Sultan's galleys quickly brought them largely to heel. And thus it was left to a throwback, an anachronism to the Crusades, the Knights of St. John, who had been expelled first from the Holy Land during the Crusades, then from their island fortress in Rhodes by the Ottomans, and now left on a rocky small island of Malta, a gift, if you will, from the King of Spain, meant to provide a bulwark in the Mediterranean Sea against the endless invasions, incursions, and massive slaving expeditions 
the Ottomans were undertaking against Christian cities and towns all along Spain, France, Italy, and across the rest of the Mediterranean. Malta was to be a last stand for the Knights of St. John, and had the battle gone in favor of the Ottoman Empire, it is likely that a full-scale invasion of the Italian mainland would have been next. Nobody could ever really say how this would have changed history. We just know it would have meant a very different Europe, and with it, America and Western civilization today. Now, the Knights of St. John were formidable warrior monks who were excellent on the high seas and in hand-to-hand combat. Many of them came from noble families from different European countries, and they were fanatical in their hatred of the Ottoman Turk, whom they viewed, rightly under the circumstances, as an existential threat to Christianity itself. The Ottoman Empire of this period, the mid-16th century, already stretched into Eastern Europe, all the way around in a massive crescent into modern Turkey today. The capital city of Constantinople, of course, seized from the Christians in a bloody siege, also the subject of a Shields High podcast, The Fall of Constantinople, which I'd recommend you go back and listen to, and then into today's Middle East and around into North Africa. The Ottomans were by far, when it came to ability to put men on the battlefield, logistics, wealth, reach, and power, the preeminent force of their time. Meanwhile, the Christian states, France, England, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, Genoa, Naples, the Papal States, Venice, were constantly bickering with each other, and it was a regular success for Ottoman diplomacy to even make temporary alliances with one Christian state while it tried to bludgeon another into submission. By 1565, the Ottomans had racked up a number of major victories against Christian forces on land and sea, including campaigns of conquest in modern Bosnia, Kosovo, and Hungary, among other Eastern European states, and massive naval victories at Jerba and Preveza. By 1565, at the Siege of Malta, the Ottomans had not won every single battle they had fought, but they had never been annihilated or suffered a crushing defeat during a siege. At Malta, in 1565, that was all set to change. It would pit one of the largest amphibious and infantry force invasions in history up to that time, against a small but absolutely fierce and devoted force of Christian knights and Maltese volunteers who, to the surprise of the aristocrats who comprised the 500 or so knights of Malta at the time, fought like devil dogs. So now let's talk about the battlefield itself, the terrain, the soldiers, and what was really going on in 1565. You had months of preparation under the watchful and very skilled leadership of Jean Parisot de la Vallette. He was the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John. His right hand and the head of his personal bodyguard during the siege was Romaga, our friend from the Siege of Malta, Episode 1, whose story largely leads directly into this battle I'm about to talk to you about in detail. The island of Malta is not particularly large. It's about 
17 miles long and 9 miles wide. It also has nearby the smaller island of Gozo, which will play some part in the outcome of this battle, but a relatively minor one. So Malta is just to the south of Sicily. Sicily at this time was in the hands of the King of Spain, and he had put Don Garcia de Toledo, a Spanish general, a capable one, as viceroy in charge of the island of Sicily. This will matter a lot because during the entire of the siege of 1565, which stretched from May until September of that year, there was always the possibility of a relief fleet arriving to save the embattled Christian defenders. But we'll get into those details in a bit. Also, we need to understand the layout of the actual primary fighting ground here on the island of Malta itself. Malta has two major deep water harbors. The Knights of St. John under de Valette decided to build up Burgu, which had been a fishing town, into a more suitable fortress. So they built a castle there. There was also nearby, on an outcropping of land, the town of Senglea built up into another fortress. So you have the primary harbor, two fortresses. They're separated by a relatively narrow channel. And then curving around in this major harbor area is a rocky outcropping, Mount Skibaris, upon which was built the Fort of St. Elmo, a star-shaped fort of the time, and we'll get into how this played an absolutely essential role in the battle, and really in many ways, people say, might have actually changed the destiny of Europe itself, this one small fort, manned by nothing more than a few hundred defenders. So... Because of spies in the Mediterranean basin at the time that the Knights had access to and their frequent travels around the Mediterranean, usually as part of the piracy for which Romaga was best known, they had a good idea of when the actual attack was coming. But they could not have foreseen in advance until it was really already underway the massive scale and operation that the Ottoman Sultan had decided, Suleiman the Magnificent, would be necessary to take the island of Malta. He wanted to send a message, this the most powerful man in the world, that no one could stand in his way, and he wanted payback, retribution, against the Knights of St. John for the humiliation they had dealt to his chief eunuch by stealing his very prized galleon the year before. Thanks, Romaga. He's the one who pulled that one off from the Knights of St. John. And this infuriated the sultan. He took it personally. And so he sent out in the early part of 1565, right after the winter season, an invasion force of over 150 ships. Uh, This was galleys, galliots, uh, various assisting vessels. Now, the galley of this time, to understand how this warfare was conducted, you have to remember this was the coming together of ancient warfare techniques with modern gunpowder-based weaponry. You had the primary naval vessel of this time, the oared galleys using slaves. Of course, the Muslims used Christian slaves primarily, and the Christians used Muslim slaves because they were chained to those oars, and if the ship did in fact go down during a battle, all the slaves were likely to drown. The way these ships would operate was not all that different from the maneuvers and the basic attack plan that they would have had at battles of antiquity like Actium and Salamis. 
The Ord ships would ram the enemy and then try a boarding operation, essentially turning what had been a naval contest into largely a hand-to-hand combat contest on the decks of ships. They did, though, have rudimentary cannons at this time and incendiary devices, including primitive grenades and, and other things that you would not have seen in antiquity that were used in these naval battles. But you had massive oared ships, hundreds and hundreds of men, slaves, forced to pull those oars as the means of propulsion for these massive wooden vessels. Now, the Sultan sent something along the lines of 35 to 40,000 men, 24,000 of his finest warriors from all across the Ottoman Empire, 8,000 support and slaves. 6,000 of that 24,000 came from the fearsome Janissary Corps, who really deserve a podcast all by themselves. This was a fascinating military force comprised of Christians taken from their homes, primarily in the Balkans in Eastern Europe, by the sultan's men, and then the ones who showed the most promise were raised as fanatical warriors, but highly skilled, trained, literate, and they were the ones that the sultan most relied upon to win major land battles. These were his crack troops. They were highly visible on the battlefield with large ostrich plumes coming out of their turbans and long flowing robes alongside the scimitars and arquebuses that they carried with them. Now, the arquebus is something you'll hear more about as we discuss this. It is a rudimentary uh, rifle, essentially. It is the firearm of the time. It could be relatively accurate and very lethal in the hands of a skilled shooter, but the reload time was extremely long, and therefore much of what we're going to discuss turned in quickly to -to hand-to-hand combat. So there were gunpowder weapons, there were cannons, there were enormous basilisks that would fire, this is what the Ottomans brought to the battlefield, fire massive stone projectiles to break down the fortifications at Malta. There were janissaries, there were spahis, who were a kind of cavalry of the time who became largely dismounted during this siege in order to become hand-to-hand combatants. And just a wide assortment of mercenaries and specialized warriors from all across the Ottoman lands. On the Christian side, the defenders of the island of Malta were around 500 or so Knights of St. John, contingents of soldiers, often mercenaries, in the hundreds from different parts of the Spanish Empire, Italian city-states, and then the primary fighting force was thousands of Maltese militia, about five or 6,000 of them in total, who were willing to fight to the very death. They were deeply religious. Uh, They thought of themselves as the direct descendants of the Christianity brought to them by St. Paul when he landed on their island. And they absolutely hated the Turks because for generations before the Battle of Malta, the Siege of Malta, They had suffered under the predations of Ottoman slaving expeditions, trying to seize Maltese villagers, men, women, and children, sell them into slavery, and murdering many of them in the process. So you have roughly 6,000 or so all in on the Maltese defender side of the equation, and then somewhere in the 35 to 40,000 range for the Ottomans, who were sending everything they had 
in order to take this island, everything they could bring to bear for this expedition. Now, Jean de Parisot de la Vallette, the leader of the Knights of St. John, also known as the Knights Hospitaller because of the hospitals they set up in the Holy Land during the Crusade. That's actually where the origins of the Knights of St. John comes from, setting up places uh, to deal with the pilgrims, to help them, to tend to them during the era of the Crusades. But Lavalette had decided that he would do everything in his power in the early months of 1565 to shore up the defenses, including building out the fort of St. Elmo on the outcropping known as Mount Skibaris, which had incredible strategic value because the two main harbors, both uh, Maramaxit and also the primary grand harbor of Malta, were entirely within view and, yes, within shot, within cannon shot of the peak of Mount Skibaris, which is where the fort of Elmo was built up. Lavalette was desperate for reinforcements in those early months of 1565. He knew the Ottomans were coming with a massive force, but the Christian states dithered and bickered. Some were more concerned about the threat to their own coastlines and refused to send any galleys or aid. The Pope himself sent along money to try to help in the defense, but did not send the much more necessary and needed reinforcements in preparation for the Ottoman invasion. So the Christian defenders of Malta have three fortified places, the castles of Birgu and Singlea, which also encompass towns right along the edge of what is the Grand Harbor. And then atop Mount Skibaris, you have the fort of St. Elmo, which was a small fort that did not have much in the way of firepower, but its strategic importance, again, was absolutely essential as we had entered the age of gunpowder and artillery pieces and cannons were going to play a major part in this siege alongside pikes, axes, halberds, swords, scimitars, daggers, all the weapons of close combat stretching back to antiquity from the entirety of the Western world. There was also on the island of Malta the old city, the original capital, called Medina, interestingly enough, the Arabic word for city, because the people, the original inhabitants of Malta itself and the villagers and the militiamen, were in fact descendants of Arab traders and Phoenicians and spoke a dialect of Arabic, but they were fiercely Christian at the same time. The city of Medina was small, but as it was in the center of the island and on high ground, it was also strategically important, and the knights decided to leave some cavalry there for sorties to harass the invaders once they arrived. Now, this would become one of the major problems that the Ottomans, with their 35,000-plus invasion force, would face. How could they support themselves through the brutal heat of the summer Mediterranean on the island of Malta itself? And keep in mind that in preparation for the siege, the Christian defenders, the Knights of St. John, had poisoned wells, brought in all of the livestock they could, burned everything that could be useful to the Ottoman invaders, and it was a very rocky island to begin with. This would also be deeply meaningful, not just because supporting themselves would become very difficult for the Ottomans, they could not live off the land, they had to bring supplies with them, but because the way they had won at the Siege of Rhodes in 1522 was the use of sappers, uh, those who could dig underground to undermine the outer walls and fortifications of what was then the great fortress of Rhodes. That was 
That was going to be much more difficult on the island of Malta because of the very rocky soil. So the Ottomans were going to have to rely much more on firepower than on tunneling and the kind of engineering that they had used specifically to undermine the walls at Rhodes. A quick note about the Siege of Rhodes, that was the homeland of the Knights of St. John after they were expelled from the Holy Land during the loss of Crusader castles there at places like Acre. Uh, Rhodes was their major fortress, and they lost it to Suleiman the Magnificent, who allowed the order of the Knights of St. John, the Knights Hospitaller, to leave alive. That was not a decision he planned to make a second time around decades later. Of note, Jean de Parisot de la Valette, now the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, was also present for that loss of Rhodes in 1522. So it was payback time in both of their minds. And now a note on the leaders of this, who, of course, played a major role. I've told you a bit about Jean Parisot de la Valette, the French Knight of St. John, the Grand Master, considered the greatest ever in the order because of the siege of Malta and what occurred there. He was, like Suleiman, in his 70s during this battle. So some of these individuals were quite old. In fact, Turgut, who was a fearsome pirate, terrifying to the Christians after decades of raids and slaving all along the coasts of Europe, was in his 80s at this time. So the primary leaders were beyond senior citizens, and this for them was all in. On the Christian side, I've also mentioned the greatest naval commander of his time for the Knights of St. John, Romaga, who during the siege itself became captain of de la Valette's personal guard and tried daring raids across the actual harbor to reinforce St. Elmo during its doomed, but in many ways nearly miraculous, holdout against the initial Ottoman barrage. But weeks before the massive Ottoman invasion fleet arrived, Don Garcia de Toledo of Sicily, the king of Spain's man on the ground there, had come to tour the fortifications of Malta and had given Valette three pieces of advice, ones that he would heed, and would make an enormous difference in the battle to come. Number one, do not allow for a broken level of command. Keep your war council small and efficient and secret. Don't split it up among different people. Don't allow too many people to be involved in the most important decisions. It is you and your top advisors only. Number two, do not allow unnecessary skirmishing outside the walls of your fortifications. You will need every man you have and all this glorious hand-to-hand combat, shining armor in the sun stuff should be put away if you want any real chance of winning this thing. And number three, you, La Valette, must protect yourself during these battles. Do not take unnecessary risks because if the commander dies, the morale of the men will go with it, and then calamity will result. Don Garcia was a wise man. So was La Valette, and he would remember those words. The Ottoman chain of command was broken down between Mustafa Pasha and Piali Pasha. Mustafa was the supreme commander of the land forces. Piali was the supreme naval commander. These were two vain, 
well-connected to the sultan and utterly vicious men who absolutely hated Christians and took a particular delight in massacring and mutilating them when they gave orders to their men, not just on the battlefield, but with captives as well. And then there was a third major name in all of this, Turgut, known as the Drawn Sword of Islam, a pirate who was almost unmatched at his skill in naval warfare and someone who had struck fear into the hearts of Christians all along the Mediterranean for the massive slaving raids he had engaged in, the constant pillaging and terrorizing of his hated Christian enemies. And in fact, a note of irony, Turgut had enslaved almost the entire island of Gozo next door to Malta some years before the siege. Thousands of men, women, and children taken off to slavery, effectively depopulating the island. Well, the inhabitants of Malta did not forget what he had done to their countrymen, and they too wanted payback. And over 150 warships appeared on the horizon on the 18th of May, 1565, the Christian defenders knew that this would be an absolute fight to the death. There would be no quarter given or asked for. They were facing the largest Ottoman invasion fleet ever assembled to that point, one of the largest naval, amphibious, and hand-to-hand engagements in decades. We have a very good sense of the feelings, the temperament, and the observations of the Christian defenders because there were some chroniclers who lived through to tell the tale and wrote diaries day after day. When that invasion fleet arrived, the Ottoman ships blotted out the horizon. The Maltese defenders marched through the towns of Birgu and Singlea in Christian procession. The Knights of St. John stood upon the ramparts of Birgu, Singlea, and St. Elmo fortresses in their steel bassinets draped in bright red surcoats with a large white cross, known as the Maltese Cross now, prominently on their chests. The Ottoman forces under Mustafa Pasha and Piala Pasha managed a largely unopposed landing, and there were some initial skirmishes in the opening days of the conflict as the Turks set up their camp that were a preview of the viciousness that was to come. Anyone captured by one side or the other was tortured, mutilated, and then killed, and often had their bodies placed on display as a warning to the other side. It was chronicled that a Christian knight who was captured in the earliest days of the Ottoman invasion was asked directly by Mustafa Pasha what were the weak points of Birgu and Singlea fortifications. He was promised his freedom if he would only tell the Turks where to attack in their initial testing of defenses. During a first probing attack on Birgu, Lavalette allowed some of his knights who were absolutely chomping at the bit to get into the fight to go outside the fortifications and engage in hand-to-hand with the initial exploratory force sent by the sultan. Hundreds died on the sultan's side, about a dozen or so lost on the Christian. By the time they attacked Sanglea in a similar probe, Lavalette was heeding the words of Don Garcia de Toledo, viceroy of Sicily, and kept his men behind the fortifications and made sure not to lose any unnecessarily. Both of these probing attacks against the fortresses, the primary fortresses of the Knights of St. John, were unsuccessful, 
And Mustafa Pasha was furious with the captured Christian knight, felt that he had lied to him, and yes, had him viciously, slowly tortured and beaten to death in full view of other Christian captives. Then the war council of Mustafa Pasha and Piale Pasha, the commander of the armed forces of the Ottomans, the commander of the navy, decided that it was absolutely necessary to attack, yes, Fort St. Elmo on Mount Skibaris, because that would then allow for the full landing of the Ottomans in the Maramaxit Harbor next door, so to speak, and also prevent any naval reinforcement of the Maltese defenders through the Grand Harbor itself. The Ottomans right away took to setting up their cannons, trained them on the star-shaped fort of St. Elmo, and this was because of the angles of fire needed for the cannons and arquebusiers who lived inside the fort. They wanted to both mitigate incoming rounds, cannon shot and musket fire in their direction, arquebusier fire, uh, as well as give themselves the best angles of fire against oncoming attackers. As part of that, they had built an extended part of the fortification called a ravelin, which was a small fort extended beyond the primary fort's walls to give ranging fields of fire and to try to keep the Ottoman trench diggers heads down. The chroniclers from within the battle describe an ongoing onslaught of Ottoman firepower that was like nothing else anyone had ever seen in the era. Dozens of enormous cannons, including the famous basilisks, some brought from the Siege of Rhodes itself decades before, were used to hurl enormous cannon shot, including massive stones against the fortifications to turn them into rubble. All the while, the Knights of St. John had to deal with snipers, arquebusiers, largely from the Janissary Corps, but just seemingly endless incoming fire was the reality that the defenders, largely Spanish troops and mercenaries in Fort St. Elmo, had to deal with. Now, the Ottoman attackers thought that they would be able to take Fort St. Elmo in a matter of mere days. Within a few days of their initial invasion fleet's arrival on the 18th of May, they had set up and they were pounding day after day, day and night, on the fortifications of this hastily built and highly imperfect strong point. There were also hand-to-hand incursions. Members of the elite Janissary Corps in particular were deployed day after day to try to overrun the fortress's defenders and plant the crescent flag of Islam atop its ramparts. But this wasn't just another military conflict with paid professionals fighting for a prince or a pirate king of North Africa looking for booty on the high seas. This was a holy war. The men who were in St. Elmo thought that they would achieve not only renown in Christendom, but everlasting life for their defense of the Christian faith. On the other side, the Ottomans were explicitly told by all of their religious leaders that if they died in battle like this, they would go to paradise where they would have a constant, yes, this is in fact what they were told, access to the most beautiful virgins and all the earthly delights one could imagine. So the religious fanaticism on both sides here was extreme. And the Christian defenders had no interest or desire whatsoever to back down from or find a way out of this challenge. What was supposed to take mere days 
became a weeks-long, drawn-out siege on this fort. The entire might of the Ottoman invasion fleet, all of its janissaries and sappers and thousands of specialized fanatical warriors, all being brought to bear on this small fortification with a mere few hundred defenders. Every single life lost to those on the defense was keenly felt because their manpower was dwindling so rapidly. But there was a loophole of sorts, a lifeline. There was the ability to reinforce this fort through the Great Harbor. Birgu and Singlea were able to send reinforcements, communications, and supplies across the water at night, and the Ottomans allowed this to happen. They didn't realize what was going on in the initial weeks of the siege. This was absolutely critical for the defenders. Every day that passed that the fortress was able to hold against the Ottoman invasion gave more time for Birgu and Singlea's defenses to strengthen and also increased the possibility of the so-called cavalry arriving, a relief force from Sicily, which had been promised to De La Valette of the Knights of St. John, but had not arrived. After two weeks, roughly, of siege warfare against the fort of St. Elmo, more ships appeared on the horizon. There was, for a moment, a deep hope among Christian defenders that it could be the relief force from Sicily, but no, it was Dragut. Dragut, the drawn sword of Islam, the most notorious Barbary pirate of the era, arriving to provide reinforcements for the Ottoman invaders who were already greatly outnumbering the defenders on Malta. Unfortunately, Dragut was also skilled in siege warfare and was giving very good advice as soon as he arrived to Mustafa Pasha and Piali Pasha about where they should place their guns, more guns, higher guns, build out the offensive fortifications that they had surrounding St. Elmo in order to train more fire directly into the fort itself. He understood right away that time was not on their side. They still had the major fortifications of Birgu and Singlea to take on, and every day lost going deeper and deeper into the hot summer in Malta increased the possibility of a relief force arriving, of dysentery breaking out among the Ottoman troops, which did occur and took many, many lives, and the other challenges that the Ottoman siege knew it would be faced with from the beginning. For those who were terrified at the prospect of having to tell Suleiman back in Constantinople that this was not going as planned. For the generals in charge of the siege of Malta on the Turkish side, failure was not an option. Failure was a death sentence. Day after day, deep into June, the Ottoman gunners continued to pound away at the fort of St. Elmo. The casualty rate for the Knights of St. John and the mostly Spanish mercenaries uh, who were the defenders inside were already sky high. There was no escape for days on end from the constant fire of massive cannon shot, and the Ottoman ground forces would often attempt sorties that turned into the most vicious hand-to-hand combat on the walls of St. Elmo itself. But then, the defenders of St. Elmo had an idea. There were rudimentary hand grenades, incendiary devices at this time, and even ancient weaponry like Greek fire was used to great effect by the besieged. But an ingenious idea attributed to one of Lavalette's knights 
was deployed with great effect against the Ottomans starting in the early period of June of 1565, fire hoops. They created out of straw and pitch a large hoop that they would set alight and then push toward large numbers of charging Ottoman troops. Their long flowing robes, which were actually quite good for the very hot summer months of Malta, were also quite flammable. They would catch fire and then run in terror, often lighting other Ottomans on fire in the process. This became one of the most fearsome weapons used by the defenders of St. Elmo and absolutely enraged the Ottoman leadership who saw their men catching on fire in large numbers every time they tried to storm the ramparts of this tiny fortress on this rocky outcropping that they thought they would take in days, and now it looked more like it would take a full month of siege warfare to bring this stubborn, fortified place to rubble. With only 70 or so defenders of the initial 500-plus alive inside the Fort of St. Elmo on June the 23rd, 1565, the Ottomans were able, in a full-scale assault, to overtake all who remained. They massacred the Christians they found. They killed every man down to the last. Some Maltese, without the heavy metal armor of the knights and the Spanish defenders, were able to make it down to the coast. And this was notable because they then transmitted their firsthand account of the fall of Elmo to others, and it's why we have the details that we do. Dragut, however, had already been hit by a shard from one of the massive Ottoman fusillades backfiring, and so an Ottoman commander was near death by the time the fortress had actually fallen. This, alongside the fact that some of the most prized janissaries of the sultan's entire army had died in massive numbers, hundreds and hundreds, in their efforts to take the tiny fort of St. Elmo with only a few hundred defenders to start out with. The fury of the now victorious Ottomans, at least at this stage of the siege, was demonic. They found wounded Christian soldiers and beheaded them, disemboweled them, mutilated their bodies and put them on display, cut off heads, put them on pikes. No prisoners were to be taken. Mustafa Pasha ordered every last man inside the fort executed. And then to add insult to injury, Mustafa Pasha ordered that some of the Knights of St. John, whose bodies had already been horrifically mutilated, their heads decapitated, be strapped to crosses, and floated across the harbor of Malta, the Grand Harbor, over to Birgu and Senglea to be found by the horrified Christians. Yes, the vicious Turks. They were mocking the crucifixion, you see. This was to be a fight to the death, and there was no doubt about that on either side. But even this felt like a transgression, beyond whatever rules could have existed before in this conflict. But the aged La Valette, would not be easily cowed. He told the city of Medina to execute all of its Muslim prisoners, but one a day, every day. And he himself decided to bring his Muslim captives out of the dungeons in Birgu and have them decapitated. Not only that, but the Ottomans awoke the next day to find heads being shot out of cannons directly into their camp. 
Lavalette was sending a message to the bitter end, to the last dead man, Deus Volt. The defenders of St. Elmo had bought critical time for the rest of the Knights of St. John in this pivotal battle. On the next episode of Shields High, you'll hear the final phase of the Great Siege of Malta, the Ottoman offensive, and the desperate fight to save Bergu and Sanglea and the Knights of St. John from the Ottoman grasp. And finally, the Christian victory at Malta that has resounded through the ages. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or follow Shields High on the iHeart app. This has been Shields High. 